Hey everybody, this is Control Structure, episode 54 for January 29th, 2014. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Xanator, the H is silent. I am your host, Andrew Bailey, and this is my guest, uh, returning guest, uh, Steven. Hi, Steve. Hi. 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 How you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Uh, well, I'm trying to stay warm here, but it's colder than death. Uh, how about you? I've been pretty cold, too. It's been getting down around zero, and I'm not sure if it ever got below zero or not. I wasn't watching that close, but it was pretty close if it didn't. Uh, I think it actually did. I mean, we lived close enough together. Yes. Um, let's see, and it's, and it's been so cold that this is my second day in a row that I've worked from home. Oh, they let you work from home when it's cold? That's nice. Apparently. <laughs> Since, you know, my CEO and my boss is like, you know, it's like, oh, we're concerned about you, and then they all send us home. Uh, so... Um, initially it was just gonna be one day, but then they realized it was gonna be two really cold days in a row, so like, just stay home. So... <laughs> That's not bad. So, I mean, you know, maybe once a month we could just do this. Uh, it'd, be a, it'd be a fun thing for a break once in a while to work from home. I don't think all the time probably would be frustrating because it's like you need to talk to people and get stuff done. Sometimes you actually need to be able to go stand at someone's desk and bug them. Yeah, and uh, I think that was like one of my main sticking points of my last job that I had uh, because my manager uh, lived in Virginia and you know she kind of had to work from home all the time. It's a very different relationship when you only see your boss, like, twice a month. If that. Oh, yeah, so, it's, you know, I can stand it being cold. Like, I don't really mind it being below 30 degrees for weeks on end. But I can't really stand it being below 15 degrees for weeks on end. I'm not asking for much. I'm just asking maybe it could rain once in a while to wash all the salt off. Not at 15 degrees, though. Uh, much more than 15 degrees. So, uh, but uh, before we get started here, get too into this, if you're listening through iTunes, uh, we want you to know that this podcast does have show notes. So go to thenexus.tv slash cs54. And if you're listening to, through the website, like Mom is, hi Mom, you're probably looking at them right now. And if you're listening through some other means, well, I trust that you know what you're doing. You ever heard of a not-real-place called Ukraine? I have heard of that place. Yeah, apparently that was like a place where my pastor and yours on Thursdays uh, was a missionary to, uh, like about 15 years ago or so. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, that's rather ancillary. Uh, but uh, last week, the best poll request comment was posted on GitHub, uh, apparently to some PHP framework and, like, integrating SQLite. Uh, the, uh, the creator of the project uh, got a uh, poll request, and he said, I will take a look later, much, much later, because I'm Ukrainian and we have revolution right now. Sorry. <laughs> so... Like, I've heard that, you know, people have died, and, uh, like, apparently they've been protesting a lot over there, so the government's like, okay, we'll just make protesting illegal. And guess what that did? 
I'm sure that made everyone not stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it made everyone want to protest now, if they had not already. I'm gonna protest against not protesting. <laughs> yeah. That! <laughs> so, um, turns out that uh, more people live in Ukraine than just Ukrainians. Uh, apparently, plenty of Russians live there, too. Um, the protests, at least initially, occurred along ethnic lines, which I thought was uh, pretty interesting. Because, you know, although my pastor went to Ukraine, apparently he, he learned Russian there and spoke Russian mostly. So, it's sort of weird there. And you can, you know, pretty much go on and on about stuff that, you know, this podcast doesn't really cover. But we're not going to cover that here. So, but uh, in the meantime, uh, the British Isles might have just avoided having a cannibal rat ghost ship land. Uh, since it may or may not have sunk. So, uh, this, uh, it's apparently a former cruise liner ship that, uh, was built in Yugoslavia a long time ago when there was a Yugoslavia. And it, uh, apparently got bought up by, I think, a bunch of Russians. And, uh, like, they would take rich people on cruises in the, uh, North Atlantic and Arctic a lot. Uh, but apparently they couldn't pay their bills, so the ship got impounded, and it went over to Canada, and some storm came up, and they had to, like, move it away from some oil rigs, and they just cut it loose for some reason. And because it was in uh, port for, like, two years, and no one really paid attention to it, that it probably, more than likely, acquired a rat infestation. And apparently, when rats have nothing else to eat, they will eat each other. <laughs> so, apparently, this is a quantum cannibal rat ghost ship. It sounds like the setup for some sci-fi horror story. Don't you think? <laughs> it does sound kind of funny. I was just thinking about the rat population and how there's only a given amount of energy in the population and how... I don't know. Just thinking that one through there. I mean, I mean, you know, if you have a population of rats on a ship, I mean, how long would they last before, like, they just interbreed or, like, all the entropy would exited the mass of rats? You see, that, see, that's the thing is they're burning energy as they live their lives out. Energy that is lost, that is not gained to the rat next rat that eats that rat. Yeah, um, <laughs> apparently there's something called carbon dioxide, and that's what, you know, makes up a lot of stuff. So, like, apparently that just, you know, gets exhaled away. So, you know, slowly I'd imagine the mass of that ship would be getting lighter because of that. But, I mean, if it sunk, then it took on a whole lot of water, so that weight ratio might have, you know, upended. <laughs> so that's true if it was taking on water when it sank which it probably did <laughs> so but if you're depressed from all of this uh you might be interested in a word from our sponsor have you been unable to live a full and satisfying life do you wish you had more time to spend with your loved ones does your body sometimes do things as someone with a busy lifestyle, when I heard about Xanator, I was skeptical. So I asked my doctor. As an actor playing a doctor, I'm convinced Xanator. And now for this week's LOL Google. 
uh, were you happen to use uh, any of Google's apps on Friday afternoon? Uh, probably did because I normally check my email. So yes, I would have. Okay, but that would probably have been later in the evening, though. <laughs> That's but, true. It would have been in the evening. But uh, apparently, Google their uh, site reliability engineers were doing a Reddit Ask Me Anything on Friday afternoon. And because it was Friday afternoon, I guess most everyone left because a lot of Google just went down when they were doing that. So uh, apparently Google uh, maintains a uh, app status dashboard. And as you can see on January 24th, uh, a lot of stuff went down. Uh, Gmail, Google Calendar, Talk, Drive, Docs, Sheets, Slides, Drawings, Sites, Groups, along with Hangouts and Voice. Uh just went down. So so isn't Friday the Google's uh, employee do any project you want to do day? Do they still do that at Google? Um, I'm not sure. There's been rumors that that's been sort of canceled. But from what I heard when they did do that, it was apparently up to you know each person how they wanted to allocate that. So whether they wanted to spend like 20% of each day do, doing whatever or just uh, like 20% of two weeks, like, you know, have two days every two weeks or something. But I uh, always thought that was an interesting idea to be able to kind of have your own side project and do what, what you wanted to do. They give you a chance to learn something or some new technology, just investigate it. So, but... um yeah, as if you recall, that uh, my company uses Google Docs and Gmail and all of that for you know instead of Office and Outlook and stuff. So like we couldn't really do anything for like forty five minutes. Oh, so, <laughs> and I apparently also had my own personal Gmail account uh, logged in, and that was down too. So, and uh, suddenly I go on to Hacker News and like. Apparently, this is, like, the first thing on there, uh, and it was, like, an hour old or something. For 45 minutes, the whole world comes to, to a stop. <laughs> so, and, and it's, you know, if you're the, you know, fastest gun in the West, and, uh, you know, you post that first, well, you're going to get a lot of points for that. Ah. Uh, because apparently the culture there is like, hey, this affects me, or, hey, I think this is cool. You know, if it affects someone, Yeah. <laughs> that's going to get a lot of uh, upvotes fast. Um, so yeah, I've uh, since uh, bookmarked this uh, apps dashboard uh, on uh, Chrome on my laptop, my work laptop. So uh, you know, if there's any questions about it, you know, I'll just send this link over to my CEO, and she will see that. Um, but anyways, you noticed some interesting stuff here on the. Uh, Reddit thing. Yes, I, I saw some, some comments that were left on the post there. Of course, people were joking about uh, the downtime. So one of the best ones was, so which of these guys tripped over the power cord to the cloud? <laughs> then there's another quote from a Google engineer who was responding to a question about uh, one of the, the biggest problems they've had. And, and part of that quote was, this is when I realized that the randomness is one of the finite and exhaustible resources in a serving cluster. And so what, what he was doing was pulling uh, from, in Linux, there's a port, uh, let me grab the port name here. 
It is dev slash random. And mm-hmm. I guess that is exhaustible. And he said that th- their server clusters were pulling from that so much that they ran out. And that was making the computer slower. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. <laughs> it ran out of randomness. So, yeah, that's uh, rather weird there, but apparently you're not supposed to use random. I think you're supposed to use you random, uh, since, like, I think random is based upon, like, movements of the mouse and stuff, uh, whereas you random is just a pseudo-random thing. So well, I guess neither one is really random per se. So, but, but uh, I mean, I'm not sure how much, you know... You know, if you could put a sound chip in, like, each of, you know, the motherboards and uh, install a microphone on that, that would probably be a nice uh, way of getting some randomness. I I heard once for, like, uh, encryptions, uh, you know how they, uh, like, for cryptology, how they had uh, the ciphers where they had a unique page of random characters for the keys for each time, and each time they use a different page. I heard that uh, a good way to get that random source so that someone couldn't figure out what your pattern was to make those random pages was a microphone attached to a radio that's focused on space <laughs> interference. So it's just like random radio rays from space is your random right. sequence for your keys. So, um, and you know, most of these servers would be in a data center, so all you would hear is... <laughs> Even though, would that produce random data though? If it's just a fan, a fan running. Well, I mean that's 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 a lot of noise. So that it, noise, it by definition, would be sort of random. So <laughs> that's true. I mean, and then apply some sort of pseudo random filter over that, and you know that would be decently random. It'll at least give you a good seed, yeah. So, uh, but anyways, getting getting to the bottom of this Google issue is that. It turns out that an app used to generate configuration files took a crap, and that crap was propagated to live production systems. So, and uh, the Google team has uh, posted, you know, sort of a deeper explanation of what happened. So, but yeah, it always goes to show you to test things. But then again, Google is so big... You know, stuff like this is probably bound to happen anyway. There was only in one point of view. It was 45 minutes, which was pretty decent for them to get on it and fix it in that amount of time. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of excitement over it being down. <laughs> so this uh, configuration went out to, like, the data storage engine or something that caused all their data to, like, not return and thus cause errors. But, uh, you know... If that happened to a SQL server, well, you know, let's just say, you know, are your uh, SQL queries slowing you down? Well, you might want to refactor your queries into subqueries. Uh, so, uh, someone did some research on this and decided that, uh, you know, uh, going into query planners and that you can manipula- manipulate your queries, uh, at least over, dis- you know, counting distinct things that uh, you can optimize that quite a bit uh, by, you know, creating subqueries in your SQL query. And in this one instance, uh, was able to speed up uh, 50 times faster. 
you know, by reducing the data set and, uh, you know, ordering them in certain ways and whatnot. This is, uh, you know, mostly beyond my uh, pay grade, uh, but, you know, I might be able to get something out of this. It, it was interesting how they did it, but what I found interesting was in the, the next article there. So, but, but uh, you know, don't really expect a 50 times performance improvement. You're more likely to see 2x, depending on your specific uh, uh, database system. So, do go on. Th- that that article, uh, it did list for the Postgres that there was a significant improvement between the different queries, like it showed for the their first query that wasn't optimized, took 348 seconds. And their second query that they optimized took 10, and then the third was 7 seconds. But then when you look at some of the other databases, like SQL Server, it took 4 and then 2 and 2 seconds, or Oracle was 6 and 3 and 3 seconds. So it was, it was interesting seeing how bad Postgres was at doing this particular query. Was it looks like the other database systems kind of picked up on what was going on and and fixed it. So, but uh, that that was like the only standout. Um, like even like the second query, um, you know, Postgres got a lot faster from three hundred forty eight seconds down to ten, uh, which was faster than MySQL. So that is true. It does beat MySQL at that level of optimization. So, but um, <clears throat> at least in this specific workload, that uh, SQL Server is faster than its competition, which surprised me. So it seemed like it was at least thirty to forty percent faster. So, really, it's—I mean—it's decently impressive that it picked up on that and was four seconds because that's the four seconds is better than Postgres or. MySQL at their optimized query. Right. So, um, let's see, I'm not sure exactly, but I think it was like last week that the Macintosh was released 30 years ago last week. Uh, Folklore.org has a collection of stories about the original Macintosh, uh, along with this one, uh, a rather hilarious and quirky one involving the floppy drive and hiding from Steve Jobs. Uh, were you able to read this? I did read that. It looks like they were generating a floppy disk 2.0, if you will, and it wasn't going so well. And then they found that Sony had a, a drive that was working a whole lot better, so they started talking with Sony and going through the process uh, this is Sony's, they had 3.5 drive that was like a hard case. So I assume yeah. it's probably the, the Sony, the floppy disk that we... Yeah, have. it is. Okay. So they started talking with Sony about it, but then Steve Jobs, when he heard about it, he's like, oh, well, that's great. Why don't we do it ourselves and cut Sony out of the, the mix? Yeah. But these the uh, engineers, uh, what are their names? George Crow and Bob Bellevue, they am a didn't think that that was a good idea because they had to ship their Mac in seven months. So they continued the negotiations with Sony in secret behind Steve Jobs' back. And, then and, went- and at one point, they actually had to send a guy over. So uh, apparently he was just working in their cubicle, and then they heard Jobs come around, and they told the Sony guy to get in a closet for a few minutes. 
until Jobs left. And then the best part is when uh, it says George and Larry apologized uh, to this guy for their request, and he says, no problem, but Americans, American business practices, they were very strange. Very strange. (laughs) (laughs) Quick, the boss is coming in the closet. (laughs) So, and then it turned out that... uh, the floppy drive manufacturer couldn't exactly deliver it on time. Uh, so they had to, uh, you know, actually go back to Sony to do it. Well, go back to Steve Jobs and tell them, by the way, we've been working with Sony all this time behind your back. <laughs> Aren't you glad? <laughs> so, you know, that that's a very dangerous thing to do, uh, especially since I've heard that Steve Jobs is a very angry man. So... I mean, you know, you can go talk about the rela- re- that reality distortion field all you want to, but you know, I've heard that Steve Jobs is was a devil. So, so yeah, I found that a little bit interesting there. Always a good one. But uh, let's go forward to the future, uh, onwards to the shiny and new. Uh, See, I'm not sure if we mentioned this on this podcast. I think we might have did that, but it might have been with uh, Chris. Uh, But AMD has announced its first ARM CPU, uh, a system on a chip, really, uh, the Opteron A1100. And that will come with either four or eight 64-bit Cortex-A57 cores. So, uh... You know, this has been on uh, AMD's roadmap for some time, but you know, this is the first time they've actually announced a product based off of that. Uh, apparently, it will begin sampling in March, but I'm not sure if uh, or like when the actual final release date is going to be. So, you know, I've known that other companies have tried to push ARM cores into servers, but none have really succeeded at that. I I know that uh, Intel is pushing Atom CPUs into server designs, but I haven't a clue of whether or not they've caught the world on fire. Uh, that's rather odd wording because that's what they're supposed to prevent, being energy efficient. <laughs> um, if uh, this uh, Opteron is cheap enough, or at least if the idea uh, is implemented cheaply enough, this might be interesting for a home-based ser- server. So... so- so it's mainly the advantage with these ARM processors that they will be more energy efficient. Is that the big yeah. selling point of them? Yeah, because it turns out that ARM is uh, a lot more efficient than x86. Hmm. So, and now that uh, ARM has finally uh, graduated into the 64-bit world, uh, this was more or less inevitable to happen. So... Uh, with uh, these chips aimed at high-density, low-power servers, AMD is also putting together a micro-ATX development kit built around the A1100. It will include a Fedora-based Linux environment with development tools, Apache, MySQL, PHP, and Java 7 and 8. So, you know, you'll actually be able to you know, develop this on an actual piece of hardware. So, hey, speaking about new hardware, what else? So, I've 
found uh, the Intel released, well, no, they didn't release, this is a prototype called Edison, which is a computer the size of an SD card. And so if you think about it, it's basically your Raspberry Pi is the size of maybe, say, a, a credit card, more or less, and then it has an SD card in it. But this is a whole computer within that, the size of the SD card. It says that it's a 32-bit x86 processor, and that it has Bluetooth, flash storage, and Wi-Fi on the chip. Oh, so it's Bluetooth. not actually... Yes, Bluetooth. I couldn't remember what the what your guys' phrase was. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, it's not an actual product yet, but they, they obviously have some level of prototypes here. And is it isn't known if the electrical connections on the back of it actually align to anything to be used, but the assumption is that they would somehow make use of the SD card since they bothered to make it fit like an SD card. So that's a very interesting technology. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you could, you know, have this SD card thing in a Raspberry Pi. The only blocking thing is it would actually have to show up as SD card storage. Yes, it, it would need to be able to boot off of this computer, which so, which is... In itself, a computer. <laughs> yes. So, th- so that's, that's almost like the... Uh, it would, uh, it would be sort of like a, a anonymous internal class or something. You could say that or something, something like that. I, I was going to go back to the the Macintosh article about the floppy disk. They said in that that they were uh, for one of their larger machines. They said the solution for getting good access reading from the floppy disk was to use another Mac inside the Mac to access the floppy disk. Whoa, meta! A Mac inside the Mac. <laughs> so, uh, I think it was a little while ago that uh, Backblaze, uh, which is a uh, like a unlimited backup storage provider so you can observe International Backup Awareness Day, uh, Backblaze has published some information on how long hard drives last in their data centers. And... Uh, last week, they recently separated them out by brand. It turns out that Seagate sucks, like, really bad. It Don't buy Seagate if you want to, you know, have your uh, data last a long time. In the article, they said that Hitachi, they thought, was the best that they would buy if they could afford could afford it price-wise. But it did seem that the Western digital, digital drives are pretty decent, though. Yeah, and um, you know, I I too have you know noticed that Hitachi drives are a little bit more expensive than others. So, but you know, I've sort of shied away from Hitachi drives mostly because they like shoving four and five platters into them, which makes them hot and noisy. Ah. So, um, I I generally go after a Western Digital drive. So. I found it interesting the article that they spoke about the. Uh some of the drives they have now that are supposed to be more energy efficient that spin down when they aren't being used. And they said so that those drives did not do well for them at all because yeah. they thought they were spinning down and then coming back up so fast that it was just didn't work for the type of data storage that they do. Yeah. So, 
and it seems like most of their uh, drive failures after you know even two years have been mostly Seagate drives. Um, and like I remember, you know, reading the original article, you know, it was saying that you know after three years, you know, three quarters of the drives that they had were still running, and I think most of that's because of Seagate. Uh, whereas apparently Hitachi has a almost 97% survival rate uh, over three years, uh, compared to 94.8% uh, on Western Digital. Uh, whereas Seagate, 73.5. Which really, that's pretty impressive for the Hitachi, because they have more Hitachi drives than any other brand in their cluster according to their, their chart there they have 12,956 drives so that is it's not like they had you know 50 drives or something in it this is more yeah. most that they have and they're doing very well so but uh, then again Hitachi drives are essentially the IBM uh, hard drive uh, division because uh, like I I hear stories all the time about uh, the IBM uh, Desk Stars, uh, or the particular Death Star model that uh, was like a bad batch, uh, <laughs> and like they died like pretty much catastrophically immediately. Um, but uh, Hitachi apparently bought the uh, drive division off of IBM about ten years ago. And uh, it was recently divided. Uh, Western Digital got their two and a half inch laptop division, whereas Toshiba got the uh, three and a half inch division. So, uh, who knows what will happen there? Uh, do you use uh, Microsoft SkyDrive? I do not use Microsoft SkyDrive. Uh, I do, and I like it a lot better than Box. Because even though I only have about half the storage space with SkyDrive, uh, it's a lot faster than Box. But uh, apparently I won't be using SkyDrive anymore. I'll be using OneDrive. So uh, apparently Microsoft is going through a rebranding because apparently uh, some people called British Sky Broadcasting uh, sued them. Uh, last year over the trademark of Sky, claiming that, you know, Sky Drive is... Sky Drive is prohibiting us from breaking into this space, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, apparently My Microsoft has to rename it, and it looks like they're uh, also rolling out some changes along the way. So, I just realized, uh, in Ubuntu for a while, there's been a service called Ubuntu One for their backups and stuff. So, I'm, yeah... There has been a lot of talk about, you know, it's like, oh, is this going to attract, you know, Ubuntu now? <laughs> Microsoft is going to become Linux. <laughs> We're going to scrap Windows and just go Ubuntu. So, um, I guess they named it uh, OneDrive to go along with Xbox One and their supposed upcoming rebrandings to Windows One, Bing One, Office One, Visual Studio One. Uh, SQL Server 1, Internet Explorer 1, Encarta 1, and Bob 1. Okay, maybe not those last few, but still. I, I love the Bob 1. That was that was the best. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard what Bob would do when you fouled at your password three times? No. It would tell you your password. 
Oh. <laughs> you see, you see, the '90s sucked, and you know I could even get stuff like that. So, so but, I, I, I've never used Bob, but I, I've read about him extensively because he fascinates me. <laughs> yeah, I've heard about him. So, but uh, speaking of Microsoft stuff. Uh, Scott Hanselman wonders why people-centric UIs are not popular, um, but it seems its main uh, uh, barrier to exposure in market share is that it's only really done by Windows Phone and uh, even a little bit by Windows 8. So he uh, you know, takes a screenshot of Windows 3.1 and he compares it to a screenshot of like an iPhone home screen. And says that, you know, user interfaces haven't really changed too much because we're still representing applications as icons. So, and then, you know, he goes through, you know, in Windows 98, uh, it was all, you know, sort of document-centric instead of app-centric. And, you know, that, you know, really makes sense for a PC because, you know, on PCs you're supposed to be able to view a lot of information at one time. Uh, whereas, you know, with the uh, the interface formerly known as Metro, uh, Microsoft is really pushing a people-centric interface, you know, in that, you know, you pull up a person and you say, I want to tweet at this person, instead of pulling up your Twitter app, then finding the person in the Twitter. So, uh, but, you know, while the idea itself, I think, is rather solid and, you know, well thought out, you know, and, you know, is a definite thing that should be tried. The main problem I see is that most humans think in terms of verbs and not nouns or other humans. Uh, because up until about seven or so years ago, phones were used to connect people. Uh, but today they are apparently really good at distracting people so they will fall into oceans. Uh, I have, you know, there's apparently a you know, a conspiracy going on that, you know, big smartphones have a conspiracy with big water. I knew it! <laughs> so, uh, recalling that one article where, you know, a woman was using Facebook and walked into the ocean. Yes. I love this screenshot in the article of uh, Windows 3.1, the program manager. That brings back good memories. I love the icons they have. <laughs> so... Um, I really didn't get much use out of Windows 3.1, uh, because, you know, it was, like, mostly at my uncle's house, uh, and okay. the first computer that we got was Windows 3.1 based, but it was something called Tabworks that was laid on top of it. Never heard of that. So, apparently it was, like, distributed on all the compact computers back in the day. Huh. So, but, uh, you know... And, you know, it wasn't too long after that that, you know, it was like, hey, can you install Windows 95? So, uh, to my uncle, that is. So, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, a few things were lost, uh, like uh, Load Runner Online. And uh, uh, this one app that was literally a phone, it used, it turned your computer into a speakerphone. Hmm. And, you know, you know, it was like literally it used like the modem inside. That's what you know, it's a voice modem inside of there. Wow. 
So, and like, I think there was a microphone, like, sort of like beside, there's, I think it was the little hole, uh, like on the upper corner of the monitor, uh, because it was like an all in one unit. Okay. So there's a hole, like, sort of almost at the top of the monitor on the side that was the microphone. And there was, like, speakers, you know, embedded, you know, down underneath. So, you know, you could just type in a number and call someone. Wow, I like that. And, you know, that has never been done since. You know, this is technology that has been permanently lost. Mm-hmm. See, that's the thing is you could probably plug in a modem, like, find an old PCI modem. And, and if you need this software, that'd be pretty tough to figure that one out. But... Like, that doesn't seem that difficult to do. Like, we even have USB modems, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then I remember going to Windows 95. It's like, oh, there's this phone dialer application. It's like, no, you actually need to plug a phone into the computer. This sucks. <laughs> so, uh, let's... let's uh, tell about something else that kind of sucks uh remember that new api that amd was doing uh something <laughs> called mantle yes i remember that so uh apparently the first game that was supposed to use it would be battlefield 4 and that would come in a patch but turns out that battlefield 4 had really big problems and that's in all caps for emphasis big big problems uh, so the Mantle patch was delayed until about now, but it looks like it will be delayed even longer. Uh, hopefully the Mantle API documentation will be released by Friday. So, you know, even though I don't have a uh, AMD card, uh, you know, I still look forward to, you know, looking at this and see what they're doing with it. <clears throat> so... It would I'm not sure if it would suck if it's doing pretty much the same thing as, like, all the other APIs are doing. But, like, the main thing, as you remember, is that there's much less call overhead. Mm -hmm. And it would be, you know, rather amazing that you, you know, essentially write to this, you know, area of memory and the GPU knows what to do with it from there. So, oh well. So, when you're in Linux, have you ever used kill-9? I have used it. It comes in handy for those processes that just don't want to die. So, you know, I have used it, but I don't make it a habit. You know, it's kind of rare that I do. It seems to be almost once every apocalypse. So, and, you know, everyone says, you know, don't use kill-9, don't, don't, don't. Uh, because apparently what it does is that it tells the operating system to just kill this. And it doesn't exactly notify the application that it's going to be shot in the head. <laughs> it just shoots it in the head. That's a good way of putting it. Because that's exactly what it does. <laughs> you know, instead of you know asking it to leave the house, it just shoots the guy in the head. But the problem with when you use dash five, though, the the application has the option of saying, "No, I don't want to leave the house. <laughs> you can't make me." <laughs> uh, whereas just a regular kill or kill dash fifteen, you know, says, "Leave now, or I'm calling the police." Um, fortunately, you know, pretty much every time I wanted to kill something, uh, it cooperates with that. 
it, it is typically the the normal kill does work. I found. I, I have used the nine in a couple instances where it's, I forget what it was that was locked up or whatever it was was bad, and it was just like this isn't going any place, and so, that works. So when you shoot a program in the head. Um, like it leaves its files and everything splattered all over the drive if it happens to be writing something at that time. So he was like, yeah, I'm just, you know, sitting here writing and boom, <laughs> blood on the drive. <laughs> I just putting it together in the mental image of, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if it's like a database, you know, management program, you know, that could happen. So, um, if it's, you know, talking to, say, a client on the other end of an HTTP connection, you know, the, you know, anyone, you know, in the browser will just, you know, get a connection timeout. So, because you shot the server in the head, <laughs> uh, for example. So, and, uh, like, uh, uh, like, it, there's a, a list of, you know, you know, reasons to not use kill-9. Uh, it doesn't give a process the chance to cleanly, one, shut down sockets, two, clean up temp files, three, inform its children that it's going to be shot, <laughs> <laughs> four, reset its terminal characteristics, which is a weird choice of word there, terminal. <laughs> and, uh, uh, let's see. And then it's like, generally, send 15, wait a second or two, and if that doesn't work, send 2, and if that doesn't work, send 1. If it doesn't, remove the binary because the program is badly behaved. So, but that only works so much because, you know, what if this is your company's line of business application? Uh, in that case... <laughs> you can't exactly remove that binary from your production environment. So, but, uh, you could probably make a case that, uh, you know, you know, investing in, uh, you know, better, you know, software programming methods would actually counteract, you know, all the, uh, system administrator's time and all the user's time, you know, because, you know, they're waiting around, why is this thing not working? So... You've got to have good logging and good error handling instead of just doing whatever when something goes wrong. So, but um, sort of along those same lines, nursingjobs.us has decided to stop supporting Internet Explorer 7 and instead offers to get new computers to the users who are stuck with it. They figure that apparently new computers are cheaper than paying people to have to support the old stuff. So this is a rather interesting uh, way to approach this, you know, because you know it's like oh you have to spend you know a, you know spend like thirty five thousand dollars for this one guy to you know improve your stuff when there's probably like fifty people who could probably get like $500 computers for to actually, you know, let them view this. Yeah, that That's the worst to try to support the older versions of IE and make stuff look nice because it's just nasty. So, you know, if 
that's actually a convincing argument to drop stu- drop support for things. If it would be cheaper to just buy everyone new computers that need it, uh, rather than having to pay people to you know support that stuff. So, the thing that I found was interesting. Uh, somehow, I see the entire internet suddenly showing up and say, oh yes, my browser is IE7 and <laughs> I don't know. I was going to, for fun, I was going to stick and ch- change my browser agent to IE7 and hit their website and see if it, what kind of a message it pops up. <laughs> well, you go do that. But uh, meanwhile, uh, Mozilla has a support on all the JavaScript monkeys and what they have been doing for the past year. Turns out that they've been getting much faster. So uh, <clears throat> Mozilla has uh, you know compiled you know benchmarks on all of the uh, Firefox versions over the past year, and uh, the major releases, the major improvements under the hood, uh, like when they were released and how the benchmarks improved. So apparently, like their one engine, they sort of relegated to a sort of a front end. Uh, with a new back end that would actually compile it to bytecode or something. Hmm. And then they, you know, eventually moved that to everything. Um, which, you know, I found that was a pretty good read. So, and they also mentioned improvements with uh, ASM.js, um, which, you know, sort of uses weird conventions that, you know, sort of hint to the, uh, you know, the JavaScript compiler, uh, in quotes, uh, that, you know, this is this data type is a number or a float or an integer or an object or something. So, and, uh, you know, as a Firefox user myself, you know, you know, I have, I appreciate these, but, you know, again, I use uh, NoScript for a lot of stuff. So my browser was sort of fast already. Uh, and uh, also, it doesn't mention... It does not mention it here, I don't think. But, uh, you know, uh, the memory consumption has also gone down quite a bit, too, in the past year. That's always a good thing to have that drop down, because it makes everything faster. Uh, especially because, you know, Firefox uh, is mostly a one-process thing. Till that that whole multi-process thing comes out or yeah. into production. So and uh, uh, apparently, what is coming is apparently an off-thread of let's see, MIR construction. I'm not sure what the MIR stands for, but I assume that it's you know some sort of JavaScript uh, process or something that it's apparently being threaded off into its own thread away from the main thread. So it doesn't, you know, impact the uh, DOM rendering at all. Okay. So that's uh, definitely a good thing. Uh, uh, something else that also happened this year uh, for Firefox was improved uh, uh, TLS support. So TLS is the secure HTTP um, that, you know, uses to encrypt your credit card when you buy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's... Uh, the Firefox support has been stuck at TLS 1.0 for some time, uh, but in 
in this past year, it, ha- it has since expanded to support uh, TLS 1.1 and 1.2. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it is not uh, enabled by default. The configuration is in- insufficient. So I have found a way, uh, found a blog post that explains what exactly to do. So, you know, if you go to howsmyssl.com, it'll pretty much tell you, you know, all, all of the, uh, all the warning spots about, you know, your SSL configuration. And by uh, SSL, they mean TLS, of course. I'm still trying to figure out why, why it is that Firefox doesn't ship with it enabled for the higher versions of the TLS. That doesn't make any sense. Um, probably because there's not a whole lot of, uh, market for it. You know, uh, apparently a whole lot of servers out there don't support TLS 1.2 quite a bit. But at that point, you're sort of, uh, going along with the chicken and the egg argument. Well, I, I guess so the thing is, in the configuration on that, that blog post, like, he shows how to set the minimum value and then the maximum value for the TLS. So you could set your maximum value to support the higher one but you could still keep the minimum one on lower. So it's like, then at least your browser is going to accept whatever the web server throws at you. Right. So, you know, I've sort of tightened up my Firefox configuration quite a bit in that, you know, I set the uh, the TLS minimum version at one and the max at three, uh, which is like the internal settings for TLS 1.0 to 1.2. Uh, it also goes over how to enable and disable individual cipher suites. You know, the exact algorithm of how the key gets exchanged and what encryption algorithm gets used. Uh, so I've gone through and disabled quite a few cipher suites, uh, like the DES and RC4 uh, suites. I think I also disabled the seed one as well. And uh, pretty much all of the uh, the RSA uh, handshake based ones, except mm-hmm. for the RSA AES one twenty eight. So and uh, so you can go over to this one other website at the I think it's like the University of Hanover. It looks like that will actually list out each individual cipher suite and its individual components, like the key exchange mechanism, the encryption, and the message authentication code that it uses. So I thought that was uh, pretty neat there. It was. It's, it's always interesting to see all the information our browsers leave hanging out for the web server to look at. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was sort of doing this because, uh, uh, like, I was looking at the uh, next, you know, apparently because my Glassfish 3 or rather my Glassfish altogether is, you know, uh, got Googled by uh, Oracle in that it's being killed by Oracle. You know, I sort of in the market for a uh, a new web server. So it looks like that's going to be uh, a Wildfly 8, uh, which is the uh, web server formerly known as JBoss. Uh, are you familiar with JBoss? I recognize the name, but I don't. Not enough to know what it so, is. So, and I was sort of uh, back last year, over a year ago, actually, uh, was interested in uh, doing SSL for my server. Uh, but 
excuse me. But I realized, oh, this is too hard. Encryption is hard to get right, and something is not cooperating, and I cried and ran away. So, but uh, let's suppose that you are a, a web server administrator, like myself, uh, sometimes. Uh, and you want to have a compatibility chart of all of these cipher algorithms, and along with what browsers and servers support them. So I have found a chart, although it's a little bit out of date, um, but it shows you, you know, what's supported. So, you know, this is, you know, going back all the way to Chrome 4 and Chrome 6, along with Firefox 3.6. So, you know, I found this a uh, little bit useful. It's a very expansive chart. <laughs> yeah, it it's huge, like literally. So, unfortunately, it's there's not like an Excel source or anything on this, unfortunately. going to talk about the NSA here in this episode. Um, we're going to talk about, you know, revisit a issue that we talked about last time uh, with the FCC and classification of ISPs. So apparently there is a petition on the whitehouse.gov website that, uh, you know, actually petitions to research, reclassify uh, uh, internet, uh, internet service providers as common carriers. So uh, right now it looks like it might actually make it. Uh, it looks like it's crossed uh, 25,000 signatures left. Uh, so it's above 75,000 and it needs 100,000 to actually go through. So it looks like it's 75% there. And it needs to get the rest in the next two weeks. And they can stay up here for a month. So this is okay. this has definitely crossed the uh, you know critical mass threshold. So it probably won't do anything, but it's hey, it's worth a shot. Kind of fun that the government website for the petitions interesting. I had never seen that particular site before. It looks like a person. It says create a petition, so it looks like you can just make one, and it lets you make a ran any random one. I think there's a little bit of uh, like filtering going on here. Probably, it's too good to be true with the government. <laughs> So, you know, you know, some of these things are like uh, deport Justin Bieber, consider to not deport Justin Bieber, uh, reunite the Jonas Brothers, apparently it's all about, like, Hollywood stars, apparently. Uh, stuff about Ukraine, and uh, an, in an interesting one, which I sort of read about today, about, uh, like, the uh, MOOCs, like, the massively... Uh, online orthopedic centers or something apparently has something to do with taking college courses online 
Um, like, apparently, they've recently been blocked from places like Iran, Syria, Sudan, and North Korea. So, um, you know, stuff like that, stuff like Ukraine and whatever. I feel like some of them are, some of the ones on here are just jokes, and so by doing that, then... See, there's one right here for tell FCC to restore net neutrality, but that one only has 2,000 some, so that there isn't... No, that's a different one. Yeah, that, no, that's the same... A similar one to the one you linked to, but that one only has 2,000 something. So it's like there's no categorization or way to combine petitions, even if they're this, essentially the same thing. Hmm. It's an interesting website, though. So uh, apparently, one to deport Justin Bieber uh, apparently got started on the 22nd or the 23rd. And it's already at 156,000 <laughs> signatures. <laughs> yeah, I don't watch TV, and I don't really care. Yes. But see, the thing is about ones that are done as jokes like that is then that makes makes this website a joke so no one would pay attention to it, if anyone did it before. Maybe they just do it to make you feel good. Or The part I didn't like was how you just log in to sign the petition, then it's like, hmm, the government has a name... Where you live, what you think. Do you file taxes? They probably know that. I do file taxes. They probably know. They have to file taxes. I wouldn't file taxes if I didn't have to. (laughs) Well, you do have a point there. (laughs) You filled out a census form a while back, didn't you? (laughs) So, but uh, anyways, moving on. can you imagine that a change in the Google search algorithm, uh, it could, uh, have you considered that it might trigger an economic collapse? I, I, I saw the order, article about that, and it was interesting. So, you know, you know, you can, you know, say that, like, the value of, you know, the Google search algorithm and, you know, the page rank and all that, you know, it's, it is easily the single most important algorithm of our time, like at least in economic terms. See, see the kind of the bad part about it is when you start thinking about they're starting to argue for government control suddenly over the Google search, which I see the point they're making about its great influence it does have on the economy. And Google could suddenly decide to do something and destroy some certain company or something like that. But on the other hand, I didn't like how the article was going. Well, maybe we need to control this with some regulation. And overall, I really don't see that as a threat. I mean, you know, it could just be an accident, but then that would be reversed within, like, minutes. Yeah, typically Google is good about, like, if they make an honest accident to make good on it. So, and... You know, they just, you know, let the algorithm do its work. And, you know, there's like the DMCA takedown requests. But, you know, that's pretty much all the influence that can be had over it. So, and, you know, they keep on, you know, fighting spam. But, you know, of course, you know, there's going to be friendly fire there 
in like very specific and hopefully mm. narrow cases. So, but uh, you know, then again, this you know inspires you know competition. You know, there's that thing called Bing, uh, and Yahoo, which is actually Bing now. Uh, apparently, there's also Duck Duck Go. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, it's it's apparently the uh, privacy-minded uh, search engine. That takes too long to type. Seriously. Duck Duck Go. Really. So uh, you have stuff to uh, appreciate and derpricate. Ah, yes. Um, so I appreciate giftcardspread.com because I got a gift card from them for Wendy's. And I guess evidently, according to Wendy's, that the person who sold me this gift card online bought it with a fraudulent credit card. So they canceled the gift card. But then I emailed this the website that I bought the card through and they refunded my money in like two or three hours. So I, I was impressed with them that they were that fast on it. And then I'm deprecating Firefox because I went to type in Amazon today and Firefox guesses Amazon slash, which does not take me to Amazon.com. <laughs> I still don't like how Firefox Firefox's awesome bar still is not awesome. <laughs> still not awesome. It is still not awesome. <laughs> so, uh, let's see. Some uh, rather interesting things that have been going on. So, I think I might have talked to you uh, a few weeks ago about the registers in CPUs. Yes. So I finally went ahead and finished up my research on the x86 architecture and figured out all the little registers that it has. And by all, I mean most of them. Uh, apparently there are some more like debug and testing registers in there, uh, but these are like all the important ones. So, you know, it, I also go through the stages of x86 going from 16-bit to 32 and the, you know, extent the uh, instruction set extensions. Uh, apparently a few of them actually did expand the registers and then going on to 64-bit. So, you know, I sort of found that interesting, but man, it was a lot to digest. <laughs> That that did look like quite a big post. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's my longest one in quite some time. So you know, at the bottom there, I said, okay, let's you know recap this and sort it all out. So you know, I sort of you know made you know tables, and unfortunately, even that wasn't quite good enough. That I had to use also subscripts or superscripts and you know stars and stuff to distinguish things. You know, saying that, you know, certain registers are only available in 64-bit mode and others with, you know, this SSE extension. So... Yes. So, yeah. And uh, also, uh, uh, like a little point here, that uh, my uh, processor supports uh, AVX, or the Advanced Vector Extensions. And... Uh, like, my CPU is only, like, three years old now, but there's al already been an expansion proposed to it called AVX512, 
which, you know, as of right now, no consumer CPU has been released that supports it. So, so what does the, uh, the vector tracking do? Um, it essentially allows you to do uh, operations over greater amounts of data. So, like, let's say you have an array of integers or floating point numbers, mm-hmm. and you want to add a value to all of them, or do okay. stuff like that, or multiply, like, these three with these other three. So... And, uh, let's see, you haven't really looked into 3D all that much, but, uh, oh. have you looked at uh, matrix multiplication? Uh, I haven't gotten into that either. So, yeah, it's, you know, sort of weird that you go across one row and down another one, you multiply, like, the first one and the second one and the third one, then add up all of those. It's sort of complex, and that's the sort of stuff that these, uh, vector extensions... Uh, really like to accelerate a little bit. Hmm. Sounds like that has a lot of potential for like uh, mathematical research or something like that. I guess suppose you're gaming too, because you said the 3D would give you your matrices would be useful. True. So, uh, if you remember last week, we had uh, the King James Bible crossed with uh, the structure and interpretation of computer programs. Uh, went through a Markov chain. Yes. So uh, this time uh, we had we're a little bit more sinister and use a Markov chain against the Bible and H.P. Lovecraft. So, um, like it, uh, this guy you know posted you know quite a long passage, uh, but you know the uh, like the. Like the sixth and seventh paragraphs, I sort of like. Uh, the gleaming sand, bobbing lanterns, the Philistines be upon thee, and because the famine in the heart proceed evil for Israel, with hesitancy which I had known it to himself, he said, How shall depart from his house that? The results we learned that no harm him and rent it. My face, again, know not to inform me even all the heads of unutterable consequences. It could tell. It thunders. The thing came out of Egypt. Who knoweth? <laughs> so, so I have to ask, who is uh, the Lovecraft? Because I don't know that name. Uh, have you ever heard of Cthulhu? No. Okay, well... Um... It's essentially like uh, books he, uh, Lovecraft made, you know, wrote a lot of books that dealt with horrible things in the end of the world. Okay. So, so that, that makes an interesting mix then for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the, like the part where, you know, the thing came out of Egypt. Who knoweth? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, I found that rather entertaining. Uh, so for the first time in a long time, we have some podcast feedback. So, um, so Ryan sent us some feedback, and uh, he commented on the uh, the lady walking into the ocean there. He says that I see people on campus walking into things. It's soft, often it's a bike rack, 
planter or just generally off the side of the sidewalk, but on the side away from traffic. And, you know, I said that that's what makes watching people interesting. So I was trying to figure out when I saw that comment, a planter, like I thought maybe a corn planter or is, is that, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I was just trying to come up with what that means. Okay. Well, you see in cities, you know, there's like flower beds, but they're in like pots. Oh, that's what a planter is. Okay, I just said a different. I, I mean, I I was just envisioning this this planter, and I was like, okay. You mean like a person? No, 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 no. Like, like you know, like a, a, you know, the corn planters or something like that. That's I. That's, I was. That's I like, I had a hint. You might have been t- hey. thinking about that, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, um. Anyways, uh, Ryan says that I remember that slanted parallelogram guy. That mock-up was great work. The last image was Microsoft, a promise made, a promise kept, which is funny looking back at it. And, well, I guess that might be something for the Microsoft one. One Microsoft, a promise made, a promise kept. (laughs) So, uh, Ryan says the biggest problem for the web surfing is handling either multiple images to dynamically select a bigger size for a higher resolution or forcing all users to download large size images. I like the latter, but I mean, we need 4K bandwidth first. And, you know, I'm starting to think about it, and it'll probably be an extension to HTML because, I mean, we already have, like, JavaScript hacks and workarounds, but it would probably more or less be an extension to HTML or maybe tricksy CSS shenanigans. I mean, you say to ask the web server, server for a different size True. image based on the... Yeah, and then like do like background images and have web browsers realize, oh, I'm this size, so I won't download all these other images because I'm this width or whatever. Yeah. So Ryan asks, how similar is BTFS to ZFS? John Siracusa talks about ZFS features like this all the time. It's like Git on the scale of an entire file system. And it is quite similar uh, to both of those there. Uh, The biggest difference is that you can add and drop drives from a BTRFS volume at random, uh, whereas ZFS is rather static and fixed. Uh, you cannot replace ZFS drives, but you can remove them. Uh, you can replace and add ZFS drives, excuse me, but you cannot remove them. So, like in your uh, BTRFS system, you can say, oh, this drive is a little bit smaller now. I want to swap it for a bigger one. Uh, you can, you know, take it out, and I think it's called the balance command. And then you can install your new drive and add that in and balance it again. Interesting. And you can <laughs> you can do those completely independently and stuff. It's really flexible. Um, but uh, ZFS is also older and battle hardened, and the Ars Technical will tell you all the juicy details about that. So somehow I had mentioned about that one. Uh, New Egg Queso over encryption. And uh, uh, Ryan says, Indeed, having Diffie is like having God in the room. 
and uh, he linked to the R. Stuntnika article there, and that's what I was talking about. Anyways, we uh, come to another long-winded podcast about the same size as last time. So if you would like to uh, leave us feedback or somehow get in contact with us, or if you'd like to be a guest, uh, don't be afraid to go to thenexus.tv and click on the contact link. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. So, uh, once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Xanator. We are contractually obligated to tell you to ask your doctor if Xanator is right for you. No such contract exists, only included for comedic effect. Any similarities to real products directly or indirectly are hereby coincidental. You know, you did that really well. You may not even have to speed that up any audacity. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, let's see. Anyways, what's coming up here? I I look at the weather forecast and it says it's going to, you know, climb up above freezing. So, but it's also going to be snowy and rainy too, so I might not actually get outside to uh, walk around and enjoy it much. But yeah, it is, it is a currently 11 degrees, or thereabouts. So, yeah. Uh... You know, I wouldn't mind it warming up to, you know, maybe 25. That would be nice. 25 would be nice and toasty and warm, huh? <laughs> yeah. You know, get out my shorts, man. Yes. Uh, anyways, uh, let's see, what else is going on this week? Well, no holidays, so, you know, we're not off work or anything. But, um, yeah, I guess I'll go ahead and keep on playing my games and, uh, you know, keeping a nest right beside my video card so I stay warm. There you go. So, uh, I guess that's it. How about you? Huh? I don't know. I've, I may go back home again this weekend. It looks like it's kind of snowy the Friday night. We'll see how that goes. So, so yeah, did you go home last last weekend? I did go home last weekend, even despite the snow. I had a funeral I had to go to, so Aww. I kind of had to go. But, uh, yeah. Alright. Well, I guess we'll talk at you later, so have a good week. Okay, thank you. You too.